And we thank you that you are speaking. More than that, God, we thank you that you are with us. God, thank you for your incredible, loving, gracious presence in this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would grab a seat. want to encourage you this morning as we're continuing in our Acts series, uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit, to go ahead and open up uh, your Bible to the verses we just heard Scott read, Acts chapter 4, 33 through 511. That's where we'll be camping out and talking about this morning. Um, in just a few weeks, uh, we'll be launching uh, our next Alpha course. And if you're not familiar with Alpha, Alpha is uh, it's a series of dinner conversations where we get together just up the street at Craftsman Cafe and uh, we watch a short film that kind of talks about the big questions of life. And it really is um, a great environment for anyone, no matter where they are on their spiritual journey. We talk about Alpha uh, as being a safe, non-judgmental, pressure-free environment for people to consider Jesus and discuss what they believe. So if you haven't checked out Alpha, I encourage you to do that. But one of the reasons I love Alpha is exactly for that reason, because it invites, uh, it creates a space for me to invite my friends um, who wouldn't really necessarily feel comfortable, for example, here uh, on a Sunday. Um, folks who might be skeptical uh, about the claims of the Christian faith or about Christians or about what happens or the church or whatever reason, um, they, like an increasing number of Americans, uh, in our day, uh, don't really trust the church. And so we run Alpha because we want to create a space for them to encounter the truth of the gospel in the person of Jesus. Um, but like many Americans, they don't really trust the church. Uh, it's interesting, there was a survey done not too long ago of adults who do not attend church, uh, not even like the, the Easter Christmas crowd, right? Uh, and these are folks who um, basically, uh, when asked why, the predominant reason why they don't uh, want anything to do with the church is, quote, they think the church is full of hypocrites. And that was the word that was used, hypocrites. Uh, 72% of those who don't attend church think the church is full of hypocrites. What's interesting is 78% of that group also would say that they were willing to listen to someone uh, share their beliefs about the Christian faith. And then beyond that, another 72% said that they also believe that God exists. So in other words, most people are willing to consider the Christian faith, right, on some level. But for many of them, there's a major obstacle to doing that. Do you know what the obstacle is? That's right. It's us. <laughs> it's us. It's Christians for many people. For many people. And sadly, this is not new. I would go so far as to say that hypocrisy is and always has been the greatest threat to the witness of the church. Hypocrisy. Not the political powers that would seek to, to silence, imprison, torture, even martyr followers of Jesus through history. Uh, the greatest threat of the witness, uh, to the witness of the church then and today is not the changing cultural views or social norms. It's us. <laughs> it's us. It's hypocrisy, specifically. 
The same was true in the early church. Last week we looked in Acts chapter 4 and we saw this amazing, amazing kind of a sequence of events unfold. Do you remember Peter and John? They were going to the temple. They, they, they healed this man. This crowd gathered. Thousands came to faith in Jesus. And then they were taken before these authorities. They, they told them about Jesus, that he came to seek and to save them, about his great love for even them who killed him on the cross. And then as they were doing that, many, many were told, thousands more came to faith in Jesus because why? They were boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And then at the end of Acts chapter 4, what you see is this community that's kind of taking form around this person of Jesus. The risen Jesus has changed their lives and he's changed the way they're living life together. And that's where we picked it up this morning. And it's amazing to witness this. It's amazing to witness the life of a man like Barnabas who had his life so transformed, so moved by God and what he had done for them. He exhibited this radical generosity. And he sold all of his, uh, he sold this property and he gave all the proceeds to the community. And what happened? Those in need had their needs met. And it continued, this, this kind of incredible snowball of the Holy Spirit's power pouring out on them. More and more came to faith because they saw this community that was being transformed by Jesus. And so what we get is this picture of the church. It's like firing on all cylinders, right? That's, that's what you see in these early chapters of Luke. It's just amazing. And we look at that and we say, ah, oh, Lord, how can we not get excited about that? We want that. I mean, don't you get excited when you read these chapters of Acts and you see what God's doing in people's lives? You see miracles, these signs and wonders, but you hear people, you see people coming to faith in Jesus. They're hearing the good news of, of faith and it's changing their lives. And we want that. And we long for that. And we've experienced that here at Apostles. And we want more of it. We want more of it. And we're praying. We're asking God, do more. Give us more. Move in mighty and powerful ways so that thousands and thousands in our city might come to know Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our hope. That's why we say we're a community following Jesus, to be with him, become like him, and do what he did. Because we want to be this kind of spirit-filled, gospel-proclaiming church. And what's interesting is you go from that picture, and then at the beginning of, uh, of Acts chapter 5, you get a big old but. You see that? The beginning of Acts chapter 5, there is a big but that gets dropped right in there. Because the reality is a community that's filled with the Holy Spirit and moving in the Spirit's power and proclaiming boldly the gospel and seeing lives transformed is not only a powerful witness, it is a prime target. It is a prime target for the enemy. So things are going amazing, firing on all cylinders. But Luke, who wrote Acts, he wants us to pay attention. But, he says. See, Acts 5 is a warning for all followers of Jesus. It's a warning for us today. It alerts us to a problem. And I want us to talk about the problem this morning. But it also illustrates the consequences of that problem, and then it goes on to offer us what I think is a solution to that problem. So we're going to work through Acts chapter 5 here together by looking at the problem, the consequences, and the solution I think that it offers us. And I think it's timely for us because God is at work among us. We are living and witnessing him move among us. We are a powerful witness in our city. Praise God, but it makes us a prime target for the enemy. It makes us a target for the forces of darkness and for our spiritual enemy, Satan. And that's a reality that we need to be aware of. 
And so I want to encourage you, uh, again, just to look at Acts chapter 5 with me. Open your Bible to Acts 5, 1 through 11. And we're going to look at what happens after this big but right there. Because as great as things are going in Acts chapter 4, suddenly things go terribly wrong. Even here in the exciting early days of the church, things are not idyllic, right? That's the temptation is to look at it. The church was perfect back then. We just get back to the perfect days of the church. No, the church wasn't perfect back then. And we see that here in chapter 5. We see that in these moments where the, the church itself is threatened and the culprit that is found to be at work is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, followers of Jesus, they're members of this community, right? That's what we're told. They're part of the church. They're part of this beautiful community that's taken place. They're, they're part of this expression like Barnabas is, of this genuine and radical generosity of God that's taken root in their hearts. But then in verse 2, we're told something else about Ananias. We're told that with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, what's happening here is that they have made a conscious, calculated attempt to publicly deceive the community and ultimately God. They've made a conscious, calculated attempt to publicly deceive the community and the Lord. And somehow, Peter becomes aware of their deceit. We're not told how he knows this. But when Ananias brings his gift, he publicly and he clearly, Peter, publicly and clearly identifies the problem, right? He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice the problem here isn't that they didn't give enough money to the church, right? I think we can misinterpret this event. They should have given more if you don't give more, bad things happen. We could have done this passage during the giving campaign, you know, for example, but we didn't. We didn't because that's not the point, right? Giving to the church, giving to the Lord is never compulsory, right? It was a choice. Peter makes that clear. It was your land. You could have done whatever you wanted with. When you sold it, it was your money. You could have committed any amount, but what you did was you attempted to deceive the church and deceive the Lord. That's the problem. It's the deception. It's the hypocrisy that's taking place here. That is the problem. That was Ananias and Sapphira's problem, and it is a problem that confronts all of us, right? This is the problem. We are all tempted to deceive. We're all tempted to deceive. Um, I came across a, an article this week um, uh, about uh, uh, the Bulgarian authorities this year, earlier this year. I know, Bulgarian news is right in my news feed. It just pops up constantly. Um, the Bulgarian authorities um, apparently took over a Facebook and Twitter and multiple social media accounts uh, of a man named Alexander Nikolov. 
And uh, apparently what was discovered is this man had been using fake photos and fake posts and fake tweets and all this kind of social media basically uh, around the world to befriend people and lure them into a relationship with him so that he could then manipulate them into, you guessed it, giving him money, right? Uh, and what's interesting is if you were to look at the social media accounts, and they posted some the pictures in the article, they, they were of a young man who was attractive, but kind of normal, average-looking, in his 20s, who was with other people, living life, having fun with his family, doing all these things that like a normal person would do. But the reality is that who was running the account was a 50-year-old hacker. And all this was fake. It was all just this effort, this campaign to lure people in again to take their money, to fool them, to deceive them. The reality is that our technology, and we know this, our technology can be used for good, right? But our technology can also be a powerful tool of deception in our world. All of us are tempted to do this, not on the scale that the Bulgarian authorities are going to come for you, right? Probably not. However, all of us are tempted, especially, I think, in our modern cultural moment with technology being what it is, to kind of practice this, this deceptive mode of living. And what I mean by that is that in a world of Instagram and Facebook and Tinder, it's incredibly tempting for us to create this public persona, right? This public persona, this online story, this ongoing narrative, these pictures that kind of tell the story, tell part of the story, but don't really tell the whole story. But we're kind of okay with that. Right? We want others to think something about who we are. And we leverage our technology to tell that story, to reveal that version of ourselves. And it's a form of deceit. It's a form of deceit. And Ananias and Sapphira gave in to this temptation. And my guess is it didn't begin with this step. It began with small steps of deceit that grew and grew and grew until they came before the altar of the Lord and they lied publicly and consciously to the community and to God. And I just say that because I think deceit is a slippery slope. You may be like... What's the big deal? I only post happy pictures of me online. That doesn't make me an Ananias and Sapphira. You're right, it doesn't. But it's a slippery slope, is my point. That we need to be careful about cultivating and practicing deceit, even in small ways. Because it becomes who, part of who we are, right? It begins to shape our hearts and then thus shape our behavior. You know, what's interesting is Acts chapter 4, we're told just before we were introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, we're told about a man named Barnabas. And what's interesting is the emphasis in that is not only what he did, but his name. Did you pick up on that? His name is getting changed. His name has been changed within the community, the fellowship believers. It's become Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. In other words, he's so filled with the Spirit of God, and he's so uh, kind of transformed by what Jesus has done for him, that they have to rename this guy. And they name him Son of Encouragement. And ironically, we're told the names of Ananias and Sapphira right after that. And in the Bible, names mean something. And what I think is being told here about Luke is he highlights their name. Because you know what Ananias means? It means live, the Lord gives graciously. That's what it means. 
The Lord gives graciously. That's what Ananias means. And sapphire means precious, beautiful or precious. And there's this sad, heartbreaking paradox, right, to their names because they don't match up to who they are. Barnabas matches up. His life and who he is, his name, are consistent. But Ananias and Sapphira, they don't live faithfully. In other words, their actions, who they are outwardly, is not who they really are as followers of Jesus. There's this disconnect. And as followers of Jesus, we can fall into this same place where there's this disconnect on the outside versus who we really are called to be as followers of Jesus on the inside. As followers of Jesus, Paul says we are new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are new creations in Jesus Christ, that the old has gone and that the new has come. But the reality is in a fallen world, there's always a temptation to live like the old us, to fall into the old ways of thinking and behave in ways that the old person would. And they begin to dictate our behavior and our lives. And I think Ananias and Sapphira, they were new followers of Jesus. And I think maybe part of the thing that's happening here is they were giving in to their old way of thinking. It wasn't who they are. It wasn't their name. It wasn't who God had called them to be. And yet they engaged in this way of thinking and behaving. And what ought to give us pause, I think, is that this happens even living in the midst of this incredible community where the Spirit is moving powerfully, they succumb to this temptation. They're riding high, a spiritual high. And what happens? They succumb to temptation, to hypocrisy. And I think it just goes to show the powerful temptation that it can be. This, this measure of this disconnect between who we are on the outside and who we are on the inside. This threat of hypocrisy is real and it is powerful. And we have a spiritual enemy who is constantly tempting us to live this way. When Peter confronts Ananias, he not only accuses him of deception, of hypocrisy, he actually says these words. He says, Satan has filled your heart. Wow. Now think about Peter saying that. Peter knows what that looks and feels like. He has experienced that himself when he betrayed the Lord Jesus. And so he identifies this. He sees this in, his heart, in their hearts, and he says, Satan has filled your heart. In other words, there is a very real enemy, a very real enemy, one that Jesus in John 8 that we just read calls the father of lies. Satan, the father of lies. And he is working always to convince us to believe those lies. Ananias and Sapphira were part of a community where every need was being met. I mean, think about this. Every need was being met by the community. And they were asked to, to be a part of that, invited to be a part of that, where they could give generously and they could receive for whatever they need. And they felt the need, the compulsion to hold back for themselves, right? They felt this need. Satan had somehow convinced them that they needed to hold back on their promise to give. He fed them some small lie, right, that undermined their confidence that God would provide for them, that God was sufficient for them, that fed their desire for more than they needed. Satan tempted them, and they gave in to that temptation. 
within their hearts. In other words, there was this spiritual battle that was raging. And that's why Peter says, Satan has filled your heart. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that the nearer you live to God, the more you can expect Satan's opposition. Because the perpetual consideration of Satan is to make the faithful fail. This wasn't just a poor moral choice by Ananias and Sapphira. This was an attack by a spiritual enemy with serious spiritual consequences. And what were the consequences? Ultimately, hypocrisy and deception destroy. They destroy everything. They destroy everything. When Peter publicly accused Ananias of his public deception, it says in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias and later Sapphira literally dropped dead. They dropped dead when their sin was exposed. That is hard to process, right? If you really believe the word of God to be the true testimony of what happened in this early community, it's hard. It brings up all kinds of questions. And what I would say is I think it's important to realize what we're not told here and not try to make the text tell us something that it's not telling us. So, for example, some have suggested, oh, well, maybe this is cardiac arrest due to the intense public shame, right, or the terrifying fear that they had actually tried to deceive the God, the God that they had seen move in powerful and mighty ways in their midst, Others interpret this as God clearly striking them down in judgment. But what I would say is we're not told. We're simply told that they fell down and they died on the spot. And so I think because it's not made clear, it's not helpful to guess. But what is clear, I think, in this moment, absolutely clear, is the seriousness of their sin. Right? That's what Luke is highlighting here, that it was deathly serious. James 1, 14 through 15 tells us each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death is what Peter says. Death, in this case physical death, but also spiritual death. As one commentator put it, what was at stake in this moment was not the soul of Ananias and Sapphira. They were a part of this community. I believe that. They were followers of Jesus. What was at stake in this moment was the soul of the church. You see, God acted, I believe, to protect the witness, the faithful witness of the church by exposing this insidious hypocrisy that was emerging within it. Had Ananias and Sapphira's deceit um, been eventually exposed, for example, it would have been laid out for the world to see. It would have been devastating to the witness of the church in this nascent moment. 
Only uh, a month ago, in our own city, uh, at Houston's First Baptist, there was uh, a man indicted for stealing a million dollars from the church. A million dollars from the church. And I just ask you, what do you think that did to the reputation of First Baptist? It definitely didn't help it. What do you think it's done to that community's leadership? How do you think it's affected the level of trust and confidence and the spiritual authority in that community? To the unity in that community, to the commitment, to the mission. And by God's grace, I pray that the Lord will bring about healing and reconciliation and restoration. But the reality is that the enemy has come and attacked that community. And he's done it through this deceit, through this hypocrisy, this kind of conscious, calculated attempt to publicly deceive by those within the church. It undermines the confidence that others have in the power of the gospel, both within the church and without. It erodes the credibility of the message of Jesus. It leads people to dismiss him. I knew it. It's all fake. These people are no better than me. There's no transformation. There's no change in their lives. They're just doing all the things that I knew they were going to do. Stealing a million dollars from the church as a pastor. I knew it. See, I believe that God acted to discipline Ananias and Sapphira in such an extreme way because of the critical moment in which it occurred. It was the birth of the church. It was critical to the mission of God for the salvation of the world. Now, all of us struggle with sin. This is not about being perfect. But we also struggle with what I would say is something that's particularly insidious, and it's related to hypocrisy. And what I would say is we all struggle with, with secret sin. This man had a secret sin. He was embezzling a million dollars. No one knew, and then it came to light. It was a secret sin. Maybe like Ananias and Sapphira, we have secret sin. Maybe in your life, you're, you're carrying around some act of disobedience that you know you're not living according to God's call. You're not being faithful to him. You're not being who you are as a child of God. Maybe like Ananias and Sapphira, it's got to do with money. You're being dishonest with your money. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's alcohol, pain medication. Maybe for you, it's, it's pornography. It's something secret. It's something hidden. No one else knows about it. It's just you. Or so you think. You see, one of the dangers of secret sin, of living this double life, who we are on the inside versus who we are on the outside, one of the dangers of this is that Satan can actually convince us that secret sin is private. That secret sin is private, but there is no such thing as private sin. There is no such thing as private sin. Our sin may be secret, hidden from the view of others, but it is always public because it always affects others. It doesn't just affect me. No one may catch you watching porn, right? but it's slowly but surely destroying the intimacy you have with your wife, with other people in your life, with your children, with God. 
regardless of what you believe, it does affect. Regardless of what you see, it does destroy. Because secret sin always destroys. It always destroys. And ultimately destroys your relationship with God. See what Peter said to Ananias? He said, you've not lied to man. You've lied to God. So we can deceive others. We can even deceive ourselves. You cannot deceive God. You cannot deceive God. And when we try, we become people not filled with the Spirit, not who we are, but people whose hearts are corrupted by Satan. We chase our sinful desires. Our faith grows weaker. We cease to pray. We stop believing that God could ever actually love us, and we fall into despair. This is the path that destroys us when we believe the lies of the enemy. This is the consequences. It's the problem, the consequences, but there's good news. It's hard to find in Acts chapter 5, but it's there. And this is the good news. There's a solution that we live in the fear of the Lord. People dropping dead because of their sin. Wow. That's unsettling. I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, I pray we never see that here, right? I would say amen if I were you. <laughs> Right? We, we, not, we, don't want to, we don't want a community where this takes place. And so the question is, God, what, what are we supposed to take from this? What are we supposed to learn from this? How can we avoid ever being anywhere near this kind of hypocrisy as we enter into the battle that we all face of temptation, of deceit, of not being who we are, of hypocrisy? How do we deal with this, Lord? When Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, the result in the community, we're told, was fear. Verse 5 says, the great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11 says it again. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And as strange as it might sound, that's the gift from the Lord. That's the gift from the Lord. It's a gift that we need as a church today, as followers of Jesus. Because it's this fear of the Lord that leads us to realize how much God loves us. I know that sounds crazy, but it's so true. It's the fear of the Lord that leads us to this place where we live and we walk in this confidence that God is God and we are not. And that that God invites us into a life with him. This holy other God who is nothing like us, who is perfect. He invites us into his presence. And the right way to enter into his presence is with a holy fear. Because he's God. He's God. See, holy fear reminds us just how seriously we should take sin. Things like spiritual deception and hypocrisy. It makes us pause and realize that they can poison our relationships with one another and ultimately poison our relationship with the Lord and even the witness of the church. It reminds us how fragile we are, how dependent on the Lord we are. It reminds us that we have a spiritual enemy who is always coming against us, always tempting us. 
that as we draw near to God, our enemy will work that much harder to pull us away. Because God is so good, you see? Because God is so loving. Because he longs for us to be with him, to know him, to trust him, to have faith in him, and to live as he's called us to live. It's a fear that causes us to examine our own lives in light of God's grace then. I mean, how is it that we can come into the presence of a holy God at all? Who among us has not been a hypocrite? We are all hypocrites. Who among us has not wanted to seem more spiritual than we really are? I know I have. Who among us has not done good things for all the wrong reasons? For our own selfish motives. And yet, what does the Lord do? He invites us into life with him, into relationship with him. See, holy fear moves us to be honest about our sin, about our brokenness, about our shortcomings, and it reminds us of the kindness of the Lord that then leads to repentance. That's what the fear of the Lord does. That's why every week we come to this table, and as we do, we come and we confess every week our need for the Lord. We do that out of our fear of the Lord a holy fear, that we can come into the presence of a holy God and he receives us by grace because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can come and so we pray. We confess. We ought to say Psalm 139, 24 over and over and over again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting into life with you. We want to be a church like the early church, spirit-filled, bold, compassionate, and generous. We want to continue, right, to bear witness to the living God who can transform lives. That's what we long for. That's what we're called to be. That's who we are. But we have an enemy who is coming against us, who seeks to deceive us and lead us into deception. So much is at stake. Ultimately, the glory of God is at stake. So in the words of 1 Peter 5, we, we ought to humble ourselves before the Lord under God's mighty hand that he might lift us up in due time, that we would cast all anxiety on him because he loves us and he cares for us, that we'd be alert and sober of mind. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Why? Because we know that as a part of the family of believers throughout the world, we are suffering together, that we are suffering with Christ, that because of what God has done for us, we have confidence that he will deliver us. You know, just in closing, it, it occurs to me that as followers of Jesus, sometimes we can think that what we're supposed to do is be perfect. That what we're supposed to do is be these perfect examples to the world. Because if they see us being perfect and right and good, then they'll, they'll put their faith in Jesus. And I think that's a trap. And I think it creates an opportunity, a door in our hearts for Satan to work his way in. And it's a trap because we're not called to be perfect. There's one who is perfect. He's Jesus Christ. And we are called to follow him. God doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to be honest, right? 
He calls us to be honest. Now, you may be saying, I never, I'm, try, I'm not trying to be perfect. I know I mess up. But here's what I think happens. I think we still carry that around, that we're supposed to be perfect. And what happens is we know we're not, and so we live in a place of shame and guilt. And that's, that's the crack in the door that Satan wants and he uses. And so some of you here today, you may be feeling that guilt and shame. I don't measure up. I've got secret sin in my life. I've deceived. I know that's what's going on in my heart. I can feel it. It's eroding my relationship with my friends, my, my wife, my, my God. It's, it's there. I can feel it. And what the Lord wants you to know is that, that there's grace. You're not called to be perfect. You're called to be honest. That if we come before the throne, not trying to pretend to be something we're not, that what awaits us is forgiveness and life and the fullness of life with Jesus. So I want to invite you just to close your eyes this morning. I just want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for these words in Acts chapter 5. Lord, we thank you as hard as they are maybe to understand and Lord, even to receive that you would use them, Lord, to draw us to yourself, that you'd use them to remind us of, Lord, just how fragile we really are, how susceptible we really are to our own selfish desires and motives. But, Lord, also that you invite us into this place where you're God and you're great enough and you're sufficient for us. And Lord, that you love us. And that we don't have to be perfect. You just ask us to be honest. And so Lord, today I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us an honest people. An honest people before your throne of mercy. That when people look at this community, what they see are people who are honest honest about their own brokenness, honest about their sin, honest about their need for the forgiveness of God and for his power in their lives. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.